Welcome to Calvary Chapel in the City, Sunday morning service. Uh, my name, if, if you've not noticed, I'm not Pastor Steve. I'm Pastor Eric. I'm filling in for him. Pastor Steve and Stephanie are down at a funeral today. Uh, Stephanie's father passed away, so uh, we'll pray for them. So they're, they're, they and their family are down um, uh, south, I believe it's in Georgia. And Pastor Steve will be back in the pulpit uh, next Sunday. They'll be traveling back uh, to Boston in a few days. Okay, this morning we will be in the Bible. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. Ushers will be coming up to hand out Bibles. Raise your hand nice and high. If you'd like a Bible, they'll get you one. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. The Apostle Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for all of your word. And God, we seek to understand you this morning. We seek to draw near to you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come amongst us and open our eyes to the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to understand our age and our calling and our purpose in it. God, I pray where there's confusion and doubt and darkness that you would bring light. And so I pray this, Lord, over the body of Christ. And we pray for Pastor Steve and we pray for Stephanie. We pray for the whole family that you would comfort them, Lord. That words would be spoken over them this morning in the service they're attending that would encourage them in this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. These were the words that Peter wrote in his epistle nearing the end of his ministry. He wrote them when he was... Um, living and ministering to the church in Rome. And uh, church history records that it would be there that he would actually die, that he would be crucified at the order of the Roman emperor Nero. Now we're going to be going through a lot of verses today. You can turn there if you like. You can read them on the projection screen. Uh, the next verse we're going to read is Acts chapter 1, verse 6, where it says... Here's the disciples speaking to Jesus. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now this was the last question Peter and the disciples asked of Jesus right before he ascended to heaven and right as they began their apostolic ministry starting the church. Now as we read through the book of Acts, and I hope most of you have read through the book of Acts, at least at the beginning, it would seem that the final prophecies of the coming Messiah would be fulfilled. It would seem that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, would be established on earth in their midst right there at the beginning of Pentecost. In fact, the Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter quotes from the book of Joel, an Old Testament prophet who was prophesying of this day, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, it says, and it shall come to pass after that, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And Peter went on to explain that today, what you saw, the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples, they were speaking in tongues at the time, and they were speaking in language that everyone could understand from all the different nations, that that was a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel spoke. Then he went on to quote through the rather long passage of Joel, finishing in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, where it says, And it shall come to pass 
that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we know it's recorded in the book of Acts that on that day, 3,000 people gave their life to Christ. Massive evangelistic ministry that happened. Huge number of baptisms. It was just an incredible, joy-filled, exciting moment. But then the very next verses in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations, and I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Now, of course, Joel was a Jewish prophet. And the promise would be that God would bring all the Jewish people who had been dispersed all over the known land back to Jerusalem where they would worship God there. And then all the nations that persecuted them, God would judge. In the valley of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was one of the kings of Israel. And so perhaps many of these converts, and they were all in, the, in this experience in Pentecost, they were all Jewish converts they were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and they thought the kingdom was imminent, that the judgment would take place there and the nations around them would be destroyed and the earth would be filled from one end to the other with the glory of God and that peace would reign. But Peter stopped short. He didn't quote these verses. He stopped short of those verses. And what followed in history in the church was something different. It was the persecution of the church. You remember the story that Stephen was stoned to death, one of the deacons of the church. Then John, the brother of James, was killed by King Herod. And the apostle Peter was imprisoned, but he miraculously escaped. And so as Christians fled persecution out of Jerusalem, they ended up spreading the gospel to all nations. Now, this fleeing from Jerusalem experience would have been very confusing to the Jewish converts. They were expecting Jesus to reign on earth from Jerusalem. But instead, the persecution was happening and they were fleeing. And so anticipating this and understanding this, the author of the book of Hebrews in parts deals with these theological concerns that the Jewish believers would have. And the book of Hebrews concludes, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13 through 4. He says to these Jewish converts, Therefore let us go forth to him, which is to Jesus, outside the camp, which was Jerusalem, bearing his reproach, for we have no continuing city, that would be the old Jerusalem, but we seek the one to come, the new Jerusalem. And in fact, the temple, which had stood for hundreds of years in Jerusalem, would be torn down brick by brick, just as Jesus prophesied it would. And that really within a decade all of that would happen within a decade, actually, of the martyrdom of both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, who were killed at the order of the Roman Emperor Nero. Surely, while the, the kingdom was manifesting, the fulfillment of these final prophecies had not yet happened. But the Apostle John went on to prophesy, and the book of Revelation is mostly directed for that purpose, to help them to understand. He prophesied of a new Jerusalem to come. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 2, says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the old city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So why does Peter end his letter saying, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you? Well, the she in that passage represented the church. And Babylon in that passage, even though Peter was writing from Rome, Babylon represented exile. And so Peter is making a statement 
that the church is in exile. And John in the book of Revelation is describing that ultimate deliverance of the church out of the exile from Babylon and into the new Jerusalem that's to come. Now, the language of exile to, to you, um, if you're not as familiar with the Bible, may kind of sound strange. But to the Jewish minds, exile was a, a very common theme of their history, so they understood it very well. Moses led the Jewish people out of the first exile, where they were exiled in Egypt, and they were slaves. He led them into the land of promise, the land of Israel, where they would live for several hundred years, where they would exist as a theocracy under the terms of the Old Covenant. Now, under the terms of the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel would experience divine blessing if they obeyed the law, but they would also experience a divine curse if they disobeyed. And the nation was led, uh, at least the last significant proportion of their history, was led under the leadership of successive kings, a dynasty of kings descending from David. Now, some of those kings obeyed God, and the land experienced the divine blessing of the Old Covenant. But many of those kings disobeyed God, and, and their disobedience led to the cursing that would follow, the plagues, the famine, the military defeat, until ultimately the nation and all the people were exiled out of Jerusalem and they were subjugated to another kingdom, which was their second exile into Babylon. This final exile was not immediate. God in his mercy sent prophets to confront the wicked kings and attempt to turn them back to the covenant. And because Israel was a theocracy, let me just define that word. Theocracy is a nation which is both, both the political and the religious portion of it is one. Because Israel was a theocracy, the prophets of that time period were by nature political. Their rebukes were directed specifically at the kings. And revival would happen because the king would be called to repentance and he would turn the nation back to God and back to obedience uh, to the covenant. But the kings rejected their rebukes, rejected the rebukes and the heeds and the exhortation from the political prophets and ultimately the nation went into exile. And as they went into exile, Jeremiah, one of the most well-known of these political prophets, switched his prophecy from political rebukes towards the king, and he began to give instructions to the children of Israel about how to live in exile. Jeremiah chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take, take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Totally different style. He's not, he's not being political now. It's not the king who needs to repent. He's giving instructions to children of God who are living in exile. Now you'll notice the same style of exile type instructions from the apostles, particularly the apostle Peter in the letter of which he greets us from Babylon. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, right, people who are living in a land that isn't their own, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. 
He goes on. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Note the style there. Love the brotherhood, but they're also living and they're to honor all people that they live amongst. And they're to honor the king of the land. These are the instructions for Christians who are called to live out their lives as exiles in nations where the leadership is not expected to be Christians. Now today I want to teach on some practical points about living out that Christian faith while in exile. Now, if you were a believer living today in China or North Korea or Russia, like that would be obvious to you. It wouldn't even be an issue. But sometimes living in the United States, we can get a little confused on the subject. And the confusion can stem from our history. Right? We, our nation was in part born through the coming of the pilgrims from England they sought to establish a Christian nature, a nation here. And while our laws, our constitution, our form of government have all the markings of those who had a Judeo-Christian worldview, God did not enter into a special covenant relationship with the United States. He entered into a special covenant relationship with Israel. But the relationship between God and the United States is no different than any other nation. And even with all these influences, even with a constitution that protects religious liberty and all the benefits that we have, we still are living in exile in Babylon. Now, I bring all this to your attention because in the past several years, there has been a strange move, even amongst what we would consider to be traditionally Bible-teaching churches, where Bible teachings have started to become mixed with or even replaced by discussion of U.S. politics. And sometimes it's tied to the idea that we were founded as a Christian nation. Now, some of these people, I think, have gone astray because that they imagine that they are political prophets in the ilk of Jeremiah. And they think somehow it's their role from the pulpit to convert U.S. elected officials to repentance that the nation might experience revival. But the political prophet age is over. That was for specifically the theocracy of Israel not for secular governments. So I'm thankful at Calvary Chapel in the city, we don't teach politics from the pulpit. We do discuss political topics that sometimes get tangled up in politics. We're not shy to talk about when life begins. It begins in conception, and therefore abortion is murder. We're not shy to define that marriage was set apart and defined and called sacred by God between one man and one woman. We're not ashamed to declare the word of truth that when God created uh, humankind, he created them male and female. Gender was assigned by God, not by anybody's subjective feelings. And at times... Not most of the time, but sometimes it's necessary even to address a political uh, figure on a particular action or decision they might make, which would be sin. But we don't endorse human political parties or human candidates from the pulpit. And I bring this to your attention because in this day and age, right, we have the opportunity to listen to many pastors and many people teach from many different pulpits uh, through our phones or other electronic gadgets. 
And so if you're listening to someone from the pulpit who is on to this political style of prophecy, I would encourage you to stop. Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 19. This verse was a test of whether Jeremiah could be a prophet. God spoke to him and says, You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vial. God tests Jeremiah <clears throat> to determine whether he's qualified to be a prophet. Now, my day job, uh, I, I'm, I'm not full-time ministry. I'm a physician by trade. I hold an academic position at a university in Boston. I give lectures in, to medical students and dental students. I mentor graduate students and medical residents. I'm a senior author on many peer-reviewed publications in medical journals. And from time to time, people even sometimes invite me to talk on medical subjects. But I won't give those lectures from the pulpit. Why not? Well, the pulpit is a place where a man stands before God to declare the truths of God's word to the people. As a physician, I can speak about the work of a man and how it pertains to the managing of those who are dying. But as a pastor, I get to speak about the work of the Son of God and how it pertains to those who will inherit eternal life. All the works of medical science, and it's still a great and noble profession, and I'm honored to be in it, but all those works are vile in comparison to the precious truth declared in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it says, By his stripes we are healed. A few weeks ago, someone from this church came up, wanted to give glory to God. She had come up a few weeks earlier to pray with one of the prayer couples because a family member who was unsaved was recently diagnosed with a severe neurological disorder. And she wanted to pray for that family member. And the couple who prayed for them prayed over them this verse, by his stripes you are healed. And do you know she came up to give glory to God that that family member was completely healed? This is true today. His stripes have power today. Now it's not always God's will that everyone would be, should be healed today. But on Jesus' return, all disease, all disease will be healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And anything I could declare about what any physician, much less myself, could do is vile in comparison to that precious truth. That is the test for the prophet. Now, if what I'm telling you is true with regard to medicine, why isn't it true with regard to politics? Human politics is an, it really is, it's an interesting, worthy subject and field. I hope more Christians go into politics. We need more Christians in politics. But human politics is merely sinful men and women trying to figure out how to govern other sinful men and women. One method might be better than another method, but all of those methods are nothing but vile in comparison to the ultimate day when the king of kings returns from heaven and sits on the throne of David and the entirety of earth is at peace because the glory of God fills the entire planet. So when men of God stand in the pulpits, these are the precious things that should be spoken of. So why am I I'm making all of these uh, points? And, and this is my first point. I have other points to make in the sermon. But why am I doing this? Why am I challenging you to stop listening to so-called political prophets? Well, because even if they're right, even if they're politically right, they're still wrong. Because they have not learned to take the precious from the vile. Now, does that mean I don't have strong political opinions? I do, just like I have strong medical opinions. I even enjoy discussing those with friends and family. I'm not against that subject. I think as Christians, we need to be engaged in politics. 
But I won't waste the pulpit. I won't share the pulpit with those opinions. In the pulpit, I will share what is precious about Jesus, the great king and the great physician. Those are the precious truths. Does that make sense? All right. Now, <clears throat> when Jeremiah told the exiles to settle down and seek the peace of the city where they were exiled to, many of the Jews rejected that word. It just wasn't what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear something better. We're going back. We want to be in a Christian nation. But Jeremiah told them a reality, and the faithful heeded Jeremiah's advice among whom were Daniel and his friends. And I would like to draw a few applications from the life of Daniel, which I hope will inspire you to read the entirety of the book of Daniel, even this week, where you can learn some of the lessons they learned while they were living out a faithful life to God in exile in Babylon. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. We have that verse. Yes, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. So many of you know, know the story of Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish young man who was basically kidnapped out of Jerusalem, forced into essentially slavery in Babylon to serve the king of Babylon. And the first thing they did with these young men, Daniel and his friends, is put them on the king's diet. Now, if you know much about the Jews, you know that part of the old covenant is there was a special dietary restrictions. Jews were not allowed to eat the same types of food that everyone else was allowed to eat. Uh, we refer to it today as, you know, they can only eat what's kosher. And of course, anything that was cooked in the king's, chicken, uh, king's kitchen was not kosher. And so Daniel uh, and his friends uh, resolved that they wouldn't defile themselves with the royal food and wine. Now, we as Christians today understand that these Old Testament laws refer to principles that Jesus would teach in the New Testament. They were shadows of New Testament concepts. So Jesus spoke in John chapter 6 and verse 35. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So if you want to live and thrive in a land of exile, you have to sustain yourself with the bread of life. As you're in exile, as we all were once in the unsaved world, they survive and they sustain themselves on misplaced hopes of something other than Christ. Most of us in this room remember that experience. Striving to feel financially secure. Maybe that will sustain me. Maybe if I have a family, if I have a spouse, if I have a child... That could sustain me and give me reason to live. Maybe it's just chasing after pleasures of sin, going from one exciting experience to another. Maybe that could sustain me. But as many of us have learned, sometimes through years of failure, it just doesn't sustain. And then we come to find the words of Christ that I can be sustained by feeding on Jesus Christ. His life is meant to be fed on. We are meant to be sustained by him in our land of exile and to thrive off of him until he returns. So question, what is the food that you are sustaining yourself with today? What's driving you? What's the thing that you're clinging to just to try to survive and make sense of, of the world? Can you honestly say as David did in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs after you, O God. If you're going to survive in exile, you have to be very careful with what you're sustaining yourself with and nothing else will do. 
than our living God. Next, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 19 through 20. After Daniel and his friends had passed this test and then gone through some education and training in the king's palace, says that the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So I'd like you to notice that Daniel excelled in the things of the world around him. Sometimes a very zealous, excited new believer comes up to us, the leadership, and asks opinions. They want to go maybe into seminary because they feel called to ministry. And most of the time, we generally tell them, go get a job. Go get a job that challenges you. Find a job where you're challenged to live out the gospel in the workplace. There are some complicated things in this book that a seminary education could help you with. But 99, probably 99% of the things are so simple you could teach a child. They're just hard to live. And the workplace is the greatest opportunity to go practice trying to live the simple truths of God's word. I can tell you, I became a Christian 17 years ago and I've worked in a secular job all that time and I can't think of a singular week that goes by, including last week, where I haven't failed in some way and had to come back and repent and think through and relearn how to obey the simple teachings. I get angry. I say something unkind or I think something unkind that I really want to say. And it's just all of that stuff is still there in the workplace. All that does is it brings the reality of who I am. There was a time where I thought, man, this job is making me carnal. <laughs> That's not true. I was already carnal. The job is just exposing my reality. And it's creating an opportunity for me to learn how to live out the simple teachings of the Word of God. Seminary, unfortunately, it's almost like, almost like an adult child who never leaves the home. They never learn the responsibility of having to pay rent or paying utilities or whatever, and their, their own natural maturity gets blunted because they never learn how to be independent. In seminary, although you might learn a lot of facts about God, quite oftentimes the people who come out are sort of spiritually stunted because they've not had to just work amongst the pagans in Babylon. So being in a job is very important. It's, it's an opportunity for you to grow. Now, Daniel not only was in the midst of pagan Babylon, he not only worked in the midst of it, but he excelled there. And it's impossible to excel in a particular field without cultivating an interest in the subject. Um, so I've been a, a, a physician completely out of training for the past 15 years, but I regularly invest time to learn new things. Sometimes that time that gets invested is actually outside my regular working hours. I need to do that. That's a spiritual thing to improve my skills to become a better physician. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. That includes what you do in your job, Calvary Chapel. Question. How would your co-workers or your boss describe your work? What was your last performance evaluation? Do your co-workers think you're lazy? 
Are you the type of person who goes to a job, figures out what the minimum expectations are, and just does maybe one notch above that? Is that it? Are you subpar in what you're doing? It doesn't just relate to jobs. It could relate to your home life, to the way you take care of your kids, or whatever it happens to be. If you're doing the bare minimum, if you're not seeking to excel in the work that God has put before you, you need to repent. We're called to live out the faith in Babylon. And part of doing that is not letting our job performance somehow take away from what Christians are in the workforce. Daniel's success, and Daniel, I might point out, was actually in the field of politics. Daniel's success was ultimately led to his promotion where he became the governor over a third of the kingdom to which he himself was in exile to. Do you think that would happen if Daniel wasn't invested in and growing in the field of his work? No, he needed to be invested in that. He needed to grow in that. That was part of the ministry God had put before him. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10 says, where did that let Dave get that verse? It's all right. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. You can also pull it up on your Bible or your if you want. It says Daniel went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So from this verse, we learn that Daniel's prayers were frequent. He prayed three times a day. We learn that in Daniel's prayers, he was filled with gratitude even though he was living a life in exile, serving under a pagan king and benefiting a nation that wasn't even his own, yet he still was offering prayers of gratitude. But perhaps more importantly, in spite of all of Daniel's success and even perhaps the comforts that came with those successes being a governor, the heart where Daniel, the direction of Daniel's heart when he prayed remained unchanged. His prayers were offered towards Jerusalem. And of course, for Daniel, leaving that exile, the hope was that they would return into the land of Jerusalem. When we pray, we should pray with hearts directed and focused on the new Jerusalem and on the kingdom of God. So I can't emphasize this point enough. Right? On one hand, I just exhorted you not to be lazy at your job. I exhorted you to be disciplined and thorough and to work hard. But on the other hand, our jobs can also become idols very quickly. What's an idol? Well, it's something you worship in place of God. It's a, it's a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. And one of the keys in my own experience that I found, if you want to excel, if you want to be interested in a field and a discipline, but you want to continue to grow in the Lord and not make it an idol, our prayer time is super important because in our prayer time, our hearts need to be focused on the kingdom of God in that. So just by reference, just give a, I gave you a little of my work testimony uh, in some of my research, when I'm writing up a lot of data for a paper that I want to send in for peer review, that process of writing is like a super engaging thing. Like it takes all of my brain. And my brain will latch on to things and it's like, it's like I can't stop it. It just keeps grinding away at this subject. Sometimes I'll wake up at 3.30 in the morning, want to go back to sleep, and then my mind just, blah, 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 just keeps going. I don't know if anybody else has these kinds of problems, but... So my mind just keeps going like that. And sometimes it gets into my devotion life and my prayer life where I'm supposed to be praying and I'm thinking about whatever, some conclusion. I'm trying to work out the best way of word in this paper. 
And sometimes I have to remind myself, Eric, when Jesus returns, cancer will be eliminated. That's, that's my field of study. That's what I publish on is cancer. Cancer will be eliminated and everything you're studying and everything you're writing about will become completely meaningless. Now, that doesn't mean that what I'm doing right now is not important for God, that he wants me to do well in it. But, oh, what a freedom to let go and say, no, you can't be an idol over me anymore. I can put my heart towards the kingdom of God and set my mind to pray for the things that have greatest value and greatest meaning. So, let me ask you, are you obsessed with your career? Are you a workaholic? Maybe it's not so much your career you care about. Maybe it's the paycheck you care about. Are you caught up in how much you're making in your job compared to equal positions at other jobs? Are you always online searching for some lateral move that you can get to? Are you looking to see maybe I can get an offer here and I can go to my boss and twist his arm to get, get a better job, a better promotion, a better salary? Is this what your obsession is? Well, you gotta, you got to come back to your prayer time. What are you praying for? Even our prayers can become deceitful. Why are you here? Are you here just so that God will bless you so you can get a better job? So you can make more money? No. Daniel prayed with his heart towards the kingdom of God. He was ready to forsake all that Babylon had to offer and all he'd gained in it. As the psalmist says, better is one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. And our hearts have to stay attuned to that. Well, I hope this message will inspire you to read the rest of Daniel and that you will find many other applications, how to live out your life of faith while you're in exile. Perhaps maybe you can even take the stories and the things that you learn in Daniel and draw comparisons and think about the exhortations that the apostles gave us in the New Testament epistles and see how these all point to the way we're to live our lives as Christians in this season, this period of exile, where we wait for the return of Christ who will ultimately lead us out of this and into eternal life. But before we finish, I want to point out that we have something that the Jewish exiles in Babylon did not have. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Jesus gave this to, to the disciples. That's us. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So until Christ returns, we have, even though we're living in a land of exile, we have all the authority of the King of Kings to go and make disciples in all the nations we might be exiled in. What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, he actually tells you there. It's actually very simple. Teaching them how to obey the commandments of Christ. It's a simple thing to understand very time-consuming thing to do. I was thinking in my own field amongst physicians, there, there's actually a small percentage of physicians who do research. I'm one of them. And I think of maybe one of my, what I think might be my most significant publication. It took about seven years from the time I first started collecting data to finally getting a paper accepted on that topic. Very long process a lot of upfront investment to finally get to some end. It's just, it's just that's why it's hard. It takes so long. It, it takes a lot of faith in that. 
Well, this morning I was on the phone with a young man who's 25 years old. I first shared the gospel with him when he was 16, while he was in prison. Those of you who don't know, I have a prison ministry. I'm a chaplain in the youth prison in the Boston area. He was, happened to be locked up in the Boston area when I met him nine years ago. He now lives in Springfield. And he calls me at least on a monthly basis. He's been in and out of jail a few times, but has been out for the past several years. And by the grace of God, amazing things have been happening. And he started going to church. Went out and saw him last summer. We found a, a church for him to go to. And he still falls off. He still gets into sin. He calls me. We were talking this morning before I even came in here. Where should I live? All kinds of questions. Wanted to know about the rapture. When is it going to happen? He got scared about it. Lots of time. Lots of time. Right? If it took me seven years to publish some medical thing, this is nine years. Right? And he's still having problems. Why is it? I mentioned not very many physicians do research because of this huge commitment to, to get results. Well, guess what? Discipleship is an even longer commitment. Is it any surprise that so few Christians take Jesus' command to heart? Does anybody know what we call this command that Jesus gave us? The Great Commission. Well, if it's so great, shouldn't we be doing it? I, I actually love it. It's like one of my most favorite things to do. But it is a massive time commitment and very long term. You can invest and invest and invest and you have no idea which of any of those investments will turn into a mature believer. But it's what Christ called us to do. Now, Jeremiah told us to seek the peace of the city that we're in exiled in. For in that peace, we ourselves will have peace. So, there's this little professor part of me going off which says, I have to give you guys a test now to see if you learned anything. So let's take the test. This is going to be a multiple choice. Only one question. What is the most effective thing the church can do to seek the peace of the city where we live? Option A, preach about politics and get everyone to vote the same way. No. Okay, option B, make disciples teaching them how to obey all the teachings of Christ. Yes. Oh, you passed. Now, as long as the church will keep that their focus, making disciples who will know how to live out the teachings of Christ in the land of exile, then we will be secure in knowing that we do so in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. So, last little announcement for you. This Friday, it was brought up at the beginning, but this Friday is a special communion service. We have a Friday evening communion service about six times a year. We try to do it every other month, and it's a super important time. Jesus told us, Jesus commanded us to gather together and take communion together. And if I'm going to be true to the Great Commission, then I have to disciple you to obey all the teachings of Christ. He told us to come and take communion. We set apart these services. They're a special time where we really prepare our hearts to unify together, to bring any sin that might be in the dark out into the light, and really set ourselves together uh, to experience the grace of our Lord. And so I want to invite you and challenge you to come out to the communion service Friday night. If you don't know the address, it's in your bulletin. It's not far from here, less than a mile at the Ethiopian Evangelical Church. Okay, the worship team can come up. I am going to give an invitation. We'll have some prayer partners up at the front. If you need prayer for anything, maybe something in the message stirred something in you you would like prayer for. But I am going to finish with a verse from Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 through 20, where Jesus told his disciples, 
I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's what, he, that's what he told them. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings before, uh, because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Does this sound like Jesus was caught off guard by the persecution that would affect the believers in the first century? No, he knew what was going to happen. Do you think Jesus is caught off guard by some of the political things that are going on in our day and how those might affect the believer's life? No, he knows. And yet the invitation he gives, I extend to you right now. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Will you accept his invitation? Will you go out as a sheep among wolves and live out this Christian faith in this exiled world we're called to be in in this season of our, of our lives. That's the invitation I give. If you'd like prayer for anything, please come up and get prayer. And I will close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus. You're not afraid to put us in hard situations. But you never leave us as orphans sugarcoat things. You tell us the things ahead of time so we can prepare ourselves for them. We want to be prepared, Lord. We want to be shining lights in this dark generation. We want to be a people and a church that you can look upon, Lord, that you can look upon and delight yourself in, Lord. God, I just pray for the words that were said today. God, if there was anything on my lips that was not precious to you, somehow you just erase them from the minds today. That only what's precious would remain, God. Have your way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The words of the psalm that we're going to sing are out of Psalm chapter 1, which really kind of actually goes with what Eric was just preaching on, about our roots being, being reading, rooted in God's word. And so as we sing, if you would like to come up and pray, please come up. There's plenty of prayer couples. I want to be unmovable and unshakable, so let my roots go down deep, unmovable and unshakable in you. Be unmovable and unshakable, so let my roots go down.